1: available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going.
0: If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone.
1: If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash fangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests.
0: Go to patreon.com slash Fangirl and sign up today to join the fun.
1: You might think you're tough, but I'm tougher.
0: Nobody planned on this battle. The Spartans on the lake shore were as surprised to see you as you were to see them, but in an instant they've snapped into the dreaded phalanx, pitiless and unstoppable, invulnerable. You stand with your shield held high and ready, waiting for the signal. The lake gleams between the cracks in your shield wall, and your heart roars in your ears, and you wait, every muscle tensed. Next to you, Telephus grins. He lives for this. Ready? ready hold and your grip on your shield tightens held in your strong left arm half of it protecting you half protecting telephus he's glancing back at you now his dark eyes glowing with excitement beneath his helmet he's always been the hothead the one willing to start a fight over anything and walk away with an arm slung over his enemy's shoulder singing songs of their mutual heroism it was part of why you loved him but now you wish you could shout sense into him don't take stupid risks. War isn't a game. Don't die. You join the band together, both of you at the top of your form, you for your cool level-headedness in battle, him for his fiery spirit. Oil and water, people always said. It was no wonder you fell into bed together. Telephus fell in love like falling in a pond, and out just as quickly until you. And you never loved at all until him. This isn't a phalanx your commander has fashioned, more like a spear, a projectile, bodies packed close together, shields held on the strong left arm so that half your shield protects your neighbor, half your other neighbor's shield protects you. If you don't hold that line, knowing half your shield won't protect you, having to trust the man next to you, then the entire formation will fail. It's only as strong as the weakest bond. In other armies, they put families together, kin groups, fathers and sons, brothers. Here, you all stand beside your lovers. You were handpicked for this, not just for your skill in battle, but for your love for Telephys and his for you. It's what will keep you holding that line. Telephys is trying to say something. You watch his mouth move. You can't hear him. Don't die, you shout into the noise, but he only smiles and shakes his head that smile cuts right through you. Beyond, you hear the signal, the clear call of the trumpet splitting the air, and now you're running, running, your shield held up, half on you, half on him. Your muscles already burned, but you will hold that shield. You'll protect him until death. That is what you swore. Twenty arm lengths, Telephus in the Cadmia practicing his wrestling, the heat of the sun on his sweat-drenched skin, His triumphant grin when he pins you. Ten arm lengths. Telephys sliding beneath your cloak with you. For the very first time. Saw you watching me across the practice yard. If you don't want me here, I'll go. You want him there. You want. Two arm lengths. Telephys on the day you were chosen. The strength of his arms around you. The ferocity of his pledge. Hard by the grave of Iolus. His hand in yours. I swear. You slam into the Spartan phalanx and it's like colliding with a mountain. You feel the impact all the way down to your boots. An enemy's sword slices through the gap in your shield. Telephus is unharmed. He's laughing. He lives for this. And now you are shoving and the line trembles and breaks and you're through, trampling bodies beneath your feet. They weren't supposed to break this easy. They weren't supposed to break at all. You turn, all of you in tight formation, and you're flanking them now. And the instant before the world dissolves into the flash of metal and the shouts of charging men and the clashing of swords, you catch his grin. Telephus, he's saying something. His words caught in this single fierce moment of time. He's saying, don't die. I'm Jenny Williamson.
1: And I'm Jen
0: McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last episode... We gave you the background information for how the Sacred Band of Thebes was formed. We gave you a crash course on ancient Greek city-states, the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War, and who the Thebans were and their place, among the other emerging powers in the region. We also introduced you to the Spartans, the terrifying militaristic society that had re-engineered every aspect of their citizens' lives toward war. And we told you the story of how the Spartans took over the city of Thebes, occupying the Cadmia without spilling a drop of blood, and how an intrepid and very queer group of twelve Theban rebels, led by the firebrand named Pelopidas, took it back while looking extremely fabulous.
1: So, the Thebans had their city back. Now, they had to figure out how to hold it against the Spartans, because the Spartans would strike back, much like the empire. And the Spartans were terrifying with an elite 300 fighting man force called the Hippias that everyone was afraid of. The Thebans decided to form their own elite fighting force, the Sacred Band of Thebes, made up of 150 gay couples, all probably between the ages of 20 to 30. So these were most likely not pederastic couples.
0: Jesus Christ. These are adults.
1: (laughs) These are adults. It seems like there was Consensual relationships going on. We've hit the heights of ancient history fangirl here because normally the bar is just so low. Anyway, the man who was initially in charge of forming the Sacred Band of Thebes was named Gorgitis. He was a highly respected military leader in Thebes, and he handpicked the couples from the best of the best high performers in the Theban infantry. His recruits came from all social classes. His criteria was merit alone.
0: And love. Don't forget love.
1: Oh, gotta have that love, kids.
0: Polyanus a Greek author from the 100s AD, best known for his book on war strategy and whose name means many anuses. Just kidding. It means much praised.
1: Praise anuses. I mean, let's be honest. Anuses do all the dirty work and don't get enough praise. That's all I'm going to say about that.
0: Right. And that's why his name is polyanus Um, Anyway, so he tells us that the sacred band, quote consisted of 300 men who were devoted to each other by mutual obligations of love. And such was the effect of the passion, which they had conceived for each other, that they scarcely ever turned to flight, but they either died for each other or bravely conquered. This is the most romantic thing I have ever heard, and I love it, and I just was dying to tell this story ever since I read about this ages ago. Plutarch says that the couples in the Sacred Band swore sacred vows to each other by the shrine of Aeolus, the lover of Heracles, and that was why it was called the Sacred Band.
1: Because they were here for the long haul. This is like a religious experience to them.
0: You know what? It just blends so many elements of things that I love I'm a romance fan and an attempted romance writer and a a nerd about the dynamics of this stuff. And it blends together love and war and battlefields and intensity and queerness. And I just love all of that. And it just pushes all my buttons. I love it.
1: (laughs) The Secret Band of Thieves is just one of those bits of history, particularly military history, that I knew nothing about. And now that I know about it, I just drop it into every conversation. I'm like, let me tell you a story. So. What was it like to be in the Sacred Band? Information on that is a bit thin on the ground. The sources say that the Sacred Band was initially stationed inside the Cadmia, the citadel of Thebes, as a standing professional defense force against any Spartan attacks that might occur. Their upkeep was paid for by the Theban city, and they were sometimes called the City Band. It's speculated that since their leader, Gorgidas, was a cavalry officer, the Sacred Band were also cavalry. Although this is also unclear, we do know that their training involved dancing and wrestling, probably naked.
0: I love it. So for about a year, the sacred band hung out inside the Cadmia, dancing and wrestling and getting sweaty together and eating all that free city food and probably having a real decent time. But in the following year, in 378 BC, the Spartans assembled a military force to take revenge against the Thebans for taking back their city, which was already theirs, while looking really fabulous and definitely better than the other side.
1: And doing it with just so much style.
0: They had to convincingly pass as women to get inside the Cadmia. So the Spartan king, Agelus, how are we going to say this name? It's Aegellusaus.
1: Agilius. Agelius.
0: Looks like a dinosaur name. Aegellusaus. Egil-
1: Egiliso- Egiliosos?
0: Egiliosos? Okay, so we're going to say this name a lot. The Spartan king the II personally led a band of 20,000 Spartan troops into the Theban countryside, intending to wreak havoc on the countryside and starve the city into submission. But Athens, the new Theban ally, had sent one of their valuable assets to Thebes, an Athenian mercenary general named Cabrius, who was very good at what he did.
1: Under Cabrius and Gorgidas, the leader of the secret band, the Thebans built a barrier across the Theban countryside to stop the Spartan invaders. It was nothing fancy, just a pile of brushwood and sharpened stakes, 10 miles long, stretched across Theban farmland. But, for its time, this was an extremely ambitious fortification, possibly the largest ever built in Greece at the time. The sacred band, along with the rest of the Theban army, was stationed along this wall. The stockade did stop the Spartan army, but not for long. This is the Spartans, come on! After some feints and maneuverings, the Spartans overwhelmed the barrier and poured into the Theban countryside, burning and ravaging at will. The Theban forces weren't strong enough to take them on head-on, so they retreated to the nearby hills, where they resorted to guerrilla warfare, attacking and slaughtering spartan raiding parties it became annoying enough that the spartan king agelisus decided to root them out of their hills
0: can we just call him
1: agealicious
0: well i mean he was a silver fox by this point i believe that agelisus was like in his 60s or maybe even 70s while a lot of these events were occurring so i would say yeah
1: so i feel like agealicious is appropriate and it's going to be easier for me to say I understand that his name is Agelisos, but in this instance, I feel like the Silver Fox is calling to me from the great beyond saying, let it be, Agelicious.
0: Okay, so since we're going to mispronounce his name horribly anyway, we're just going to call him Agelicious because he was a Silver Fox in his 60s and or possibly 70s. Tell me more, granddaddy. (laughs) Oh, granddaddy Agelicious.
1: Actually, probably daddy at this point in our life. Tell me more, daddy.
0: We're just going to objectify random generals throughout all of this, so get used to it, kids. Get used to
1: it. We have an odd take on history.
0: So anyway, what I was trying to tell you is that Agelicious had decided to root the Thebans out of their own hills. So this was very bad news for the Thebans because they were outnumbered here, but luckily they did have the high ground. They arrayed for battle on the strongest hill with the sacred band on the right-hand side of the line, led by Gorgaitis and Cabrius and his forces, a mixed band of mercenaries and Athenian infantry, to the left. They held their line at the top of the hill, and the Spartans charged. So here's how James Rom describes the scene in his book, The Theban Sacred Band, 300 Theban Lovers Fighting to Save Greece. Quote, Atop the ridge, the defenders beheld a fast-approaching wall of red-cloaked troops, each bearing a shield with a red lambda, which looks like an A but without the crosshatch. Lambda for Lacedaemonian the mark of the Spartan-trained soldier. Xenophon called it, quote, a solid mass of scarlet and bronze. This would have inspired terror for any military force in Greece because the Spartans were the unstoppable war machine, the ultimate impenetrable penetrators. Nobody wanted to face down that juggernaut.
1: Some sources suggest that Agelicious, the Spartan commander, fully expected the Thebans to break. Being rushed by a human wall of the toughest soldiers in Greece will do that to you, right?
0: Reasonable to assume.
1: In fact, Aegilicious had put other rebelling forces to flight by employing just this tactic. When you point your undefeatable war machine at a bunch of mere humans not drilled in Spartan discipline,
0: it turns out a lot of them flee. But the Thebans did not flee. Instead, they held the line. And then, with the Spartan war machine, that hurtling mass of scarlet and bronze just 200 meters away, Cabrius and Gorgitis ordered the men, in unison, to stand at ease. This was a master flex. At the signal, the front lines immediately assumed the resting position, dropping their shields to the ground, resting against the left knee, spears pointing upward instead of forwards at the enemy. This movement had been drilled and rehearsed beforehand, and it sent an unmistakable message of confidence. We don't think we're even going to have to fight you guys. Uh, Can we just pause? Oh, fuck yeah, we can. Can we pause to absorb the sexiness of that?
1: Can you imagine, like, you have this, like, approaching horde of, like, the hardiest, burliest, evilest dudes like we talked about. They went through a lot to be these Spartan soldiers, right? We talked about their training. And instead of, like, moving or breaking your line, you just drop your shield down and face them. Look at them and say, you might think you're tough, but I'm tougher.
0: Uh-huh. This has got to be amongst my, my top five ancient world battlefield maneuvers that make me hot. <laughs> this is the top.
1: I mean, it's definitely up there. I mean, my top top is like some of the Spartacus stuff, but then this is like definitely second. And then unfortunately, that rapscallion Julius Caesar gets in there as well. Don't tell him.
0: So why are Jen and I utterly losing our minds over this? I'll tell you why this is the sexiest battlefield maneuver, you know, among the top five. Definitely my top one. Anyway, for one thing, it took intense discipline to look the Spartan war machine in the face just 200 yards away and stand at ease instead of in a battle stance. Intense discipline was what the Spartans were known for. It was the Spartans who were trained all their lives to look death in the face and not flinch. But now, here the Thebans were doing it right in their faces, flinging their own strategy back at them like it wasn't even any big deal at all, with a literal spear to the throat. This was a mindfuck.
1: And that's not all. Another reason the Spartans dominated on the battlefield was their very precise battle maneuvers. In agoge, boys and men were drilled constantly, day and night and night and day, and day and night, to execute very precise battle maneuvers with perfect precision. This was not easy to do on an ancient battlefield, where communication had to be done during the chaos of hand-to-hand combat, men fighting and dying everywhere, and sometimes across vast distances with little or no visibility. The training and discipline required for this was intense, and it was the Spartans' calling card. No other Greek city-state devoted as much time to battlefield drills and training as the Spartans did.
0: But when the Thebans dropped their shields to the ground, resting against the left knee, with their spears pointed upwards instead of forwards at the enemy, they did it in lockstep. Razor-sharp precision, as if they were one body. And that communicated something to the Spartans, too. Our drills are as vicious as yours. Our maneuvers are as precise as yours we're a machine too, and a deadly one. You don't have an advantage over us. The Spartans were used to being the most expertly drilled, disciplined, and cohesive fighting force in the field, and that's why they won battles. Since the Thebans held the high ground, the Spartans were probably counting on all these advantages to win.
1: That single movement, assuming a resting position in the face of a charging army, immediately and in- perfect unison signaled that not only was this force not intimidated. Oh no, we are not intimidated by you Spartans. We have heard the rumors and we know the truth. You have gotten soft around that middle.
0: You're coasting. (laughs) You're
1: coasting on your reputation. We are here. We are just as disciplined, just as cohesive. We're hungrier. We're leaner and meaner than you. Not to mention, the Thebans held the high ground. If they did choose to engage, the Spartans would have a real fight on their hands one at which they would hold the disadvantage of terrain perhaps just perhaps this is why upon seeing the at ease position that the Thebans took it was king Aegilochus who ordered his own forces to stand
0: down they got to him they got under his skin they did something he didn't expect and that's another reason that the Theban Sacred Band won their battles is creativity they did things differently The Spartans had to do everything the same all the time. That's how they maintained that rigid lockstep. The only way to do that would be to always do, you know, to have like a small repertoire of things that you always do. The Thebans had a different playbook. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio Four, this is History's Secret Heroes.
0: It was a startling victory. This was a battle the Spartans did not expect to lose. But it didn't mean that the Thebans just automatically got their city-state back. All those pro-Spartan supporters that the Spartans had put in charge in towns and villages outside of Thebes, those guys were all still there. The Thebans had only nominal control over their own countryside. The Spartan general, agelicious, retreated. But he left his army in the field in the hands of a general named Phobidas. Phebitis was the guy who'd originally orchestrated the bloodless takeover of the Cadmia. This was like four years ago by this point. He began leading highly destructive raids in the surrounding countryside. Gorgidas,
1: the commander in charge of the Sacred Band of Thebes, took over the effort to defend their countryside against the Spartan raids. During this time, the ancient sources don't mention the Sacred Band. So, you know, it's kind of easy to think that they weren't involved. But... Actually, it makes sense that the ancient sources wouldn't single them out. The Sacred Band wasn't just fighting alone. It was fighting as part of the normal Theban army. Gorgidas tended to put them in the front lines, but not as their own unit. Instead, he scattered them among the regular infantry, or maybe cavalry. We can make an informed conjecture that the Sacred Band was in this force because their commander, Gorgidas, was leading it.
0: The broad plains of Boeotia were known as the Dancing Floor of Ares, Gorgidas knew that his army wasn't big enough to meet the larger Spartan force out in the open on those plains, so they retreated to the hills once again, where they led lightning guerrilla attacks against— Okay, just kidding, assholes. Gorgidas decided to meet the Spartans out on the dancing floor of Ares anyway. The two armies clashed in battle. The Spartans attacked. This time, the Thebans retreated, and Phobidas and his Spartans pursued— Few things got a Spartan's blood going, like an enemy running away. An enemy they could run down and stab in the back. They loved that shit. The Spartan army got all excited and rushed after the Thebans with absolutely no chill whatsoever.
1: But the Thebans kept just out of their reach. And suddenly, when the time and terrain were right, the Thebans turned around and charged, crashing right into that Spartan war machine. Fierce hand-to-hand fighting ensued. Phobitus was cut down by the cavalry, probably, we think, by the Sacred Band. And then the Sacred Band and the rest of the Theban army chased the Spartans all the way to Thespiae. This was a huge defeat for the Spartans. Agelicious took over again and tried to invade Thebes a second time, but he didn't get very far. The war stretched out for a year, then two years, and his soldiers started to get restive and frustrated. His allies complained about having to fight Spartan wars while their crops rotted in the fields. Meanwhile, the Thebans picked off cities formerly controlled by Sparta until the Spartans stopped being able to support their armies in the field. After his second attempted invasion, Agelicious was bedridden by a leg injury that occurred while he was climbing a hill.
0: It's kind of lame. He was bedridden for like over a year because he tripped while he was walking up a hill.
1: Depending on the way he broke it. And the way it was healing, you might have had to have it rebroken so it would heal right. I mean, pretty pretty difficult to be alive then.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, of course, this could happen to any one of us. I might well someday break my leg climbing a hill. But I'm not a Spartan war commander. You kind of expect those guys to get injured in a more dramatic fashion is all I'm saying. Not
1: out taking a hike with their grandkids.
0: Exactly.
1: But he wasn't taking a hike with his grandkids because he's a Spartan. They don't talk to their kids that way, remember? Their kids have to go to, like, the agoge to be ritualistically abused until they're of age to produce more children.
0: Oh, they don't consider the fetus viable until it's graduated the agoge at the age of 30. I mean, that's very clear. <laughs> but the Spartans couldn't let this thing die. This thing where the Thebans were trying to kick them out of their own countryside. They were supposed to be the undisputed rulers of all of Greece. The most militaristic, the scariest, the ones with the unstoppable war machine, the ultimate impenetrable penetrators.
1: They had the biggest dicks, and if they couldn't just swing them around and get what they wanted,
0: then what was all of this for? What? Right, if they couldn't put down a clearly inferior ally-turned-enemy, then nobody would fear them, and that was bad. So Agelicious was still bedridden after that hike, and his job was taken over by his co-king, Cleombrotus. The Spartans always had two kings, it was a thing with them. Cleombrotus was younger, less experienced, less eager for battle, and less personally incensed by the general existence of the Thebans. So the war effort stalled a bit while Agelicious fumed in his bed. Over the next three years or so, Thebes took advantage of the Spartans' sudden ineffectualness by driving out all Spartan garrisons and routing out any pro-Spartan supporters in their towns. By 375 BC, most towns in Thebes were 100% Team Thebes.
1: Yeah, because even if you didn't like what Thebes was doing, they were now the people with the biggest dick and swinging it around and offering violence to anyone who disagrees. Yeah, suboptimal. Suboptimal if you're just a town that's like, could we just like, just be a town? But one city still remained in Spartan hands, Orchomenus. This was the strongest fortress in the area, aside from the Cadme itself, and the one stronghold accessible by port, which was why the Spartans could still hold it because they could still keep it supplied. As long as the Spartans controlled that city, they could use it as a base for their violent raids, burning and ravaging the Theban countryside. The Thebans needed that city. Until they took it back, their region would never be free of Spartan violence, and their plan relied on the Sacred Band.
0: So by now, the Sacred Band had a different commander. We're not sure what happened to Gorgitis. He may have been killed in battle, but the ancient sources don't say how or when. What we do know is that by now, he was out, and Pelopidas was in. Pelopidas was the same young pro-Athenian progressive who had led the original twelve in retaking the Cadmia. Pelopidas was known as a firebrand. Plutarch, who wrote a biography about him, said he had thumos, an ancient Greek concept that combined high-spiritedness and pride. He was from a wealthy Theban family. As a youth, his big dream was to be an athlete, and he primarily spent his money helping out his less well-off friends, buying them drinks, and funding public works.
1: You know what? He totally would have been a patron of our podcast.
0: Yeah. But now, he'd forsaken his dreams of athletic glory and was a commander in charge of the Sacred Band of Thebes. His first documented mission? Retake Orchomenus.
1: The city of Orchomenus was physically very well defended. It was the traditional home of an indigenous people called the Minions, who were historically rivals of Thebes, not allies. They had allied with Thebes in recent centuries against Persia and Sparta, but then willingly let the Spartans in during this conflict. Now, over a thousand Spartan warriors occupied its walls. Gorgidas tended to scatter the sacred band throughout the larger Theban army. His call here would probably be to take a large force including the Sacred Band, to tackle the walls of Orchomenus. But Pelopidas separated them out from the larger army with a plan to use them as special ops. Knowing a full-on assault was unlikely to succeed, he carefully watched troop deployments and positions until his spies told him that the Spartan garrison had left to go raiding. Pelopidas and the Sacred Band rushed north, hoping to reoccupy the city before the Spartans got back.
0: But his intelligence failed to mention that while one Spartan garrison went out raiding, a new one had come in by sea to replenish the guard. So Pelopidas arrived to find the city fully manned. He had no choice but to pull back. The retreat route took them northeast, along a lake called Lake Copias. But Pelopidas had only made it a little ways along the lake shore before they ran into that Spartan garrison that was out raiding. They outnumbered the sacred band two to one. It's said that upon seeing the Spartans, one of the Thebans freaked out and cried that they had fallen into the hands of the enemy, to which Pelopidas calmly replied, Why not say they have fallen into our hands? He did these little reversals a lot. This was kind of like a, a thing he did. He was famous for these. So like, is time fleeting or are you fleeting? Are you working hard or are you hardly working?
1: <laughs> are you taking the dog for a walk or is the dog taking you for a walk?
0: Pelopidus invented that one about hardly working.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Actually, no, as far as I know, he didn't, but he really could have. He
1: could have. That was very much like his sense of knowledge that he was imparting on you.
0: It was his sense of humor, too. It's just like, oh, God, Pelopidus, again, like...
1: (laughs) Again, with these Pelopidus jokes. They're not quite dad jokes, but they kind of
0: are. They're total Pelopidus jokes. So anyway,
1: the Spartans were probably as surprised to see the sacred van as the other way around but their lifetime of brutal training and discipline served them well here. Immediately, they formed into a phalanx, a close formation of men standing shoulder to shoulder in a rectangular formation, holding their shields in a wall, and started to advance, with their two leaders on the front lines to the right and the left. This was a classic Spartan move. Military historians debate on how the phalanx actually worked. Some people believe that the phalanx was kind of a defensive move, The men stood shoulder to shoulder in a line that would not break, and instead of hand-to-hand combat, because it's hard to stab an enemy from behind an unbroken shield wall, like we can all agree on that, they simply advanced relatively slowly on the enemy to get their line to break. Thus, the battle would devolve into a kind of slow-motion shoving match, with casualties happening by being crushed and trampled.
0: So kind of like, you know, a human tank formation, right? Others dispute this. For one, battles involving phalanxes aren't depicted that way in the art of the time. But what Pelopidas did was ingenious. He answered the Spartan phalanx with a formation of his own, one that was equally dense but significantly more aggressive. At his signal, his forces formed up into a dense formation shaped not like a triangle, but the point of a spear. And then he hurled that spear at the Spartan phalanx in a headlong charge, It was like a supercharged anti-phalanx, a phalanx buster, if you will. The sacred band crashed into the Spartan phalanx. It's so much
1: thrusting and shoving and smacking and throbbing and punishing. Where's the Morgan when you need her? Where's Bendis when you're like... Or Codas? Come on, girls.
0: Come on down. I know, right? It would be so much fun if this battle just devolved into an orgy right here, but it did not. It did not, because neither Bendis nor Kodis were there. So, the Sacred Band crashed into the Spartan phalanx, cutting down their leaders in the first few minutes of battle. Startled by this aggressive move and the sudden deaths of their leaders, the Spartans fell into disarray, and the Sacred Band passed right through them, and then turned around and flanked them. Now, without leaders, the Spartans broke and ran. Pelopidas did not let his band chase them. No, he kept his cool. That would be risking being lured into bad fighting ground or an ambush. Instead, he and the band stripped the Spartan dead and built a monument to their victory before swaggering off to Thebes like total fucking champs.
1: This was a huge deal. The great Spartan army, the impenetrable penetrators, they'd been forced to flee the battlefield. And we can't express how big a deal this was. This was perhaps the first time a Theban force, or any smaller force, had defeated a Spartan force in open battle.
0: I mean, except for that other time that we just talked about, which is a couple years prior.
1: Somehow that doesn't count. So suddenly, the great Spartan reputation for invincibility was punctured yet again, because the other time didn't count.
0: Historians do point to this battle by, um, by this lake as like the first time that this happened, even though there was one prior that happened, and I think it was that... The Spartans outnumbered the Thebans so much, and they still lost. Although I think that the other time they also outnumbered them. So, you know what? I don't know.
1: Suddenly, the great Spartan reputation for invincibility was punctured. And it turned out that they were coasting on that reputation. Suddenly, the game had changed. Hold up, Jenny. Plutarch has a comment on this, okay? Everyone quiet! Shh! He's not on the flying ointment at the moment. He's got a few things to
0: say. He's surprisingly lucid.
1: (laughs) quote, for in all the great wars there have ever been against Greeks or barbarians, the Spartans were never before beaten by a smaller company than their own, nor indeed in a set battle, when their number was equal. Hence their courage was thought irresistible, and their high repute before the battle made a conquest already of enemies, who thought themselves no match for the men of Sparta, even on equal terms. But this battle first taught the other Greeks That not only Sparta breeds men of courage and resolution, but that where the youth are ashamed of baseness and ready to venture in a good cause, where they fly disgrace more than danger, there, wherever it be, are found the bravest and most formidable of opponents.
0: So yeah, I mean, basically what he's saying is that the Spartans tended to win battles before they were even fought based on their scary reputation, like people would just not fight them. And that was starting to get punctured, you guys. All across Greece, people got the message. The Spartans were mortal after all. They could be routed. They could be terrorized. They could be driven from the battlefield in fear. Pelopidas learned from this. Phalanxes in ancient Greece already relied on intense cooperation and trust. A phalanx was only as strong as its weakest member, and all men had to resolutely hold that line. For the phalanx to work, everyone had to depend on each other, and no one could break. That's why, even outside of Thebes, phalanxes were typically organized to put men in family groups and tribes next to each other so they'd hold their ground out of love of their loved ones and a desire not to be shamed in front of them.
1: Yeah, that was the whole way in which it was supposed to work.
0: The other thing here is the way that the shields were because the guys would be holding a weapon in their right hand and a shield in their left hand, right? And that shield that they were holding... The position it was in would half protect themselves and half protect the person next to them. So they're expending half of their effort protecting the person next to them, and their neighbor is spending half their effort protecting them. They had to trust that the people next to them weren't going to drop their shield, and the person next to them had to trust that they weren't going to drop their shield because everyone had to rely on each other and trust each other. To a certain extent, it was about protecting the man next to you as much as protecting yourself. So you really had to give a shit about the man next to you.
1: You did. And what I find really interesting from a left-handed perspective is like my better arm would be my shield arm so like in a phalanx or something like that it would be quite tricky for me i've got the spear or whatever in my wrong hand
0: right but defensively you're quite strong because that's your stronger side
1: but offensively i'm quite weak
0: right but you know historians dispute how the phalanx even function was it defensive or offensive Stabbing people through that shield wall is kind of hard to begin with, so is the point just to shove your enemy aside so that you can break their wall?
1: In which case, I got my good shoving arm ready.
0: (laughs) My strongest side is my shield side. Like, that's, yeah, that sounds like you. (laughs) Legit.
1: (laughs) So, the Sacred Band had taken those bonds of love and ratcheted them up to the ultimate expression of love, which was gay love, and transformed the slow, turtle-like phalanx into an unstoppable, swift-moving weapon. It took trust. It took unbreakable resolve. And it took an intense personal bond that could not be broken, no matter how strong the enemy. Pelopidas came to believe that the dense, spear-like formation he'd used, in which the men were physically close to and relying on their lovers, was the secret to the sacred band's success. Rather than spreading them out throughout a larger infantry force, Helipides believed that the best use of the band was to keep them separate from everyone else and to keep them close, so he could make full use of the power of their love for each other. The closer they were to their lovers, the harder they'd fight to protect and show off for them.
0: After this battle in 375 BC, the Athenians, Thebes' new best friends, tried to end the ongoing wars by negotiating a treaty among all the Greek city states called the Common Peace, which the Athenians themselves immediately broke, like immediately afterwards. They immediately broke their own rules when they fell to fighting with Sparta over territory on the island of Corfu. Athens started to see Thebes as not pulling its own weight in conflicts against Sparta, not contributing to Athens' upkeep of its navy, for example. And their relationship was starting to sour. But Thebes had good reasons. First off, the Thebans were not sailors. Only one of their cities, Orchomenus, even had a seaport. And that was still controlled by Sparta. I mean, look, know your friend's strengths, right? Why are the Athenians expecting the Thebans to have anything to do with their navy? Like, these are not sea people.
1: They're so not sea people.
0: They wouldn't know a trireme from their elbow.
1: They wouldn't know a trireme from a dinghy, okay? The Thebans had their hands full. The Spartans were still causing trouble in Boeotia, despite their humiliations at the hands of the sacred band. Oh, and also, Thebes wanted to get its league back. So here's where we have to pause and talk about leagues. In the wake of the Greco-Persian Wars, which lasted about 50 years, from 499 to 449 BC, the larger city-states all formed leagues to defend themselves against the Persians and held on to them to defend themselves against each other.
0: Well, as soon as somebody forms a league, you have to form your own league, because otherwise they're going to just take you over.
1: Exactly. Each league was led by a major superpower city-state, and was comprised of many different city-states. Athens had the Delian League, which was formed by the Athenian statesman Pericles, the partner of Aspasia, you know, that badass courtesan. Sparta had the Peloponnesian League, which included Corinth, that great party city of the ancient world. And Thebes, they'd had a league too. It was called the Boeotian League.
0: According to James Romm, the Thebans were the first to do this, and they did it specifically because they were one of the lesser of the great city-states. It was a self-defense move. And when they got all these smaller city-states in the region of Boeotia together, it was an innovative move. Nobody else in the region had thought of this. Robb calls the Boeotian League, quote, the first federal state on European soil, an ethnically-based superstate that transcended the bounds of the polis. The polis was like the city. The Boeotian League was ethnically based, as Rom puts it, meaning the city-state members were also all Boeotian. They had their own leaders and dealt with their own matters in their own cities, but they had similar strategic concerns, and they pooled their resources to create a much larger army than they could on their own.
1: In that way, Boeotia elevated itself to a real regional superpower. Of course, Athens and Sparta quickly formed their own leagues not long after. So that kind of leveled the playing field again. It just meant that all the major superpowers could now field larger armies and participate in larger, more destructive wars. Because that's the dream, right? And also, by the way, the Boeotian League didn't last long. In 387 BC, it was dismantled during negotiations for a treaty called the King's Peace because the Spartans and other powers saw it as a threat. This treaty also lasted about five minutes, but by then, the Boeotian League was still dismantled.
0: But now, the Thebans wanted their league back. They started appointing Boetarchs, leaders of city-state members of the Boeotian League. This was the original title, and appointing people under this title was a clear declaration of their intent. Kind of a fuck you to the Spartans who demanded the league be dismantled in the first place. But it wasn't just the Spartans who were bothered by the Thebans starting up the Boeotian League again. It turns out the Athenians were also uncomfortable with the Thebans having this much power.
1: Surprise, surprise.
0: Giant shocker. In
1: 373 BC, two years after that battle in which Pelopidas shaped the sacred band into a single spear and thrust it. The spear of love. And thrust it straight at the heart of the Spartan phalanx, one of those Boatarchs that the Thebans appointed, Neocles, Attack the city of Plataea. Plataea was inside Boeotia, but it had always marched to its own drum. It didn't trust the other Thebans. Shocker. It had historically been more allied with Athens, but now it was allied with Sparta.
0: I get the impression that pretty much all of the other city-states inside Boeotia were like that. Like (laughs) they were all like, we don't want to really be part of the Boeotian League. We're just inside Boeotia doing our own thing.
1: (laughs) Anyway, clearly Plataea looked at Neocles wrong or something. Because all of a sudden he attacked Plataea and raised it to the ground. Many of the inhabitants fled to Athens. The Athenians were incensed at the treatment of their longtime ally, and this made their relationship with Thebes even more frosty.
0: So now Thebes' relationship with Athens was quite bad, and its relationship with Sparta was also um bad. <laughs> Things had devolved, but the Thebans gave exactly zero fucks they continued building up their league to its earlier strength, bullying, battering, and coercing all the smaller city-states who clearly didn't want to join and all wanted to march to their own drum until they gave in, sometimes taking military action against the holdouts. They were not taking no for an answer. In 371 BC, delegates from Thebes, Athens, and Sparta got together once again to renegotiate a peace treaty, and this went about as well as you'd expect given the history, primarily because these delegates, though they knew they were supposed to be there to negotiate a peace, basically just wanted war. Everyone was fed up with each other. Everyone was just looking for a pretext.
1: So the delegate from Thebes was a warrior, a statesman and philosopher named Epaminondas, a close friend of of Pelopidas. Pelopidas?
0: Pelopidas,
1: Jen. Pelopidas. Why do I keep doing this? A close friend of Pelopidas. After several extremely warlike and insulting speeches by delegates from Sparta and Athens, He stood up and said there could never be a treaty unless all three groups had equal standing.
0: The Spartan king, Agelicious, who was out of his bed now, snarkily observed that the other city-states in the Boeotian League would like a word, since the Thebans had been bullying them into their alliance. Epaminondas shot back something equally snarky about Sparta's iron grip on the Peloponnese. Basically, I have one word for you assholes, and that word is helots. We'll get to them in a bit. Soon, Epaminondas and Aegilicius were standing toe to toe, red faced and screaming at each other, each demanding that if the other really wanted in on this treaty, if they really believed in equality, they would dissolve their league at once and let each individual city state in their region choose.
1: When the Thebans demanded the right to sign the treaty on behalf of all of Boeotia, thus explicitly not granting independence to other Boeotian city states and declaring the existence of the Boeotian League, Agealicious struck their name out of the treaty altogether. They were declared outside of the protection of peace. Instead of negotiating a treaty, these people had just started another war. And that's where we're going to leave you for this week.
0: We'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on social at AncientHistFan on Twitter and at Ancient Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram.
1: And don't forget, we've got a book coming out. It'll be out in August and you can pre-order it. You can find out more on our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com.
0: We also have some Patreon members to thank, and you can find our Patreon and support the podcast by joining at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. If you join our Patreon, then you get extra episodes. Let's thank some of these delightful Patreon members that we have to thank today. Stephanie Faust.
1: Jessica, just Jessica.
0: Claire Morse-Evans.
1: Jonathan Diaz.
0: Lauren Upshaw. Brianna. Just Brianna.
1: Mouse. Just Mouse.
0: Vida Escalante.
1: And Catherine Cardwell.
0: Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.